Hi and welcome to the next episode of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for tuning in again for this week's episode. Uh, as you know, or maybe don't, <laughs> we talk to writers of all kinds on the Page One Podcast about their career, about how they broke into the industry, about their work and about anything else they want to chat to. Really. We'll chat to anyone about yeah, anything. Exactly. Pretty much. <laughs> My mum's on next week. <laughs> slow, the slow week. <laughs> Who is uh, our guest this week, Derek? This week we are chatting with Mr. Stuart Heritage. Yeah, and Stuart is a journalist for uh, various publications. Mm-hmm. I think he's maybe best known for writing columns for The Guardian as a TV critic, but he's also written for The Times, GQ, Men's Health and various other publications. Yeah. Very, very funny yep. writer, very funny guy, as we hear on the podcast. Yeah, yep. very nice guy. Yeah, and also recently written a couple of books, the first of which is entitled Don't Be a Dick, Pete, which <laughs> is a biography of his brother. It's a, you know, true, true life biography, <laughs> but it's, it's genuinely one of the funniest books I've read in a long time. The second is also very funny. Um, it's entitled Bedtime Stories for Worried Liberals, and it's a collection of very short fairy tales based on current political figures such as Trump and Johnson, and it's it's, it's very imaginative and it's it's very funny. Yeah, so, I mean, we highly recommend both of those books, but we talk about all of that, his books, how he got into journalism, how he got his job at The Guardian, which is an mm, interesting yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's an unusual person. We haven't really chatted to journalists before. No, exactly. And also talk about, like, that different style of writing about writing a column and what that takes but also we talk about politics our children swearing watchmen watchmen (laughs) everything everything is a great show yeah if you're not watching it you should be watching so uh, we'll get straight to the podcast and we'll be back at the end of the podcast to talk a bit more see you then see you Did you always want to be a journalist? Was that the goal when you were a kid? No, no. Well, kind of, actually. I always remember, uh, like, thinking that I wanted to be a television critic uh, as as a young kid because I liked watching television and I didn't have any other interests. <laughs> um, but it didn't, it never seemed sort of feasible. Um and then I just, I kind of, I, I sort of fell into journalism. And when I did, I thought, I'd, well, I might as well write about television now. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of how that worked. My first, my first writing job that I got paid for was, uh, writing jokes for, um, Charlie Brooker's production company. All right. Okay. Cool. Um, for the internet in, I think it was, it was, no, it was 2001. I know that because of the, the horrible, violent thing that happened in 2001 that everyone saw. Um, yeah, I wrote a topical news quiz for E4, the, the television channel, which had hired out, uh, Charlie Brooker's production company. Um, and so I just, I just wrote topical jokes and that was kind of my way in. And how did you even get that job? Did you have an agent or were you oh, no, no, just it telling was, jokes it was, to everyone no, you met? Or? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a uni placement. I did it. Ah, in the right. Of- okay, cool. Um, and it could have gone so, like they were, 
they they were my they were such lovely people. But my first um the first I wanted to work on Teletubbies desperately. <laughs> I wanted to be like a runner on Teletubbies, so I bombarded Teletubbies with uh, uh sort of email or, yeah emails and sort of requests. But um that summer there was a hand foot and mouth outbreak, um so they had to shut down because they, they were in a field. So they couldn't they couldn't make any, so I couldn't do it. <laughs> what was the draw for that show? It was it was new, I think, and it, I I was a student, and you know you watch ironic children's programs <laughs> as a kid, and I thought it just looked like fun. Uh, so I did that. I uh, emailed a consumer journalist uh, to see if I could sort of shadow them, and they said no. Um, <laughs> so many people said no. I was really like banging my head against the wall, and then I saw this website called um, uh, Unovations. Which was it was like a TV go home spinoff mm-hmm. um, that I really liked. So I emailed them, and they were like, "Sure, we're, we're moving offices. You can come and move some boxes around." <laughs> and then I kind of I, I was bad at that, so they went sit down at a computer, see if you can write something, uh, and I did. And I ended up doing that for um, for the whole summer, just writing jokes under the pretense I was Charlie Brooker. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was quite cool. It was really cool. And how long did you do that for then? I did that for six months. I did it all summer, and then um, they ke- they kept me on doing it remotely when I went back to university. And then because it was I, there was some internet bubble popped, and they lost all of that, uh, all the all the E four contracts. Also, it was like an incredibly. It was a very flash heavy website with lots of animations on it, and it was the sort of the days before broadband. So to play this bloody online quiz that i wrote it took 15 minutes of just waiting for stuff to load. <laughs> yeah like, it was such a good idea but so kind of really badly executed before it's time maybe yeah <laughs> like, six months before it's time i got broadband and it, it was amazing but yeah apart from that so so is that what kind of launched into wanting to go down the down the journalism path yeah kind of i always enjoyed sort of writing stuff I have a very bad imagination, so it's good to write about things that are happening in the world because I don't have to think as hard uh-huh. to, to get there, to access it. Um, so, yeah, from there, yeah, I wrote that. Then I, oh, no, then I started a website because, no, again, I went into a into a stage where no one would hire me. So um, <laughs> I moved to South Korea to teach English for a year and a half. Then I came back. No one would hire me for writing. And, like, nobody. I went... Um, I, I got jobs at like business to business magazines or interviews at business to business magazines. They wouldn't hire me. Um, I went to, um, you know, Ideal World, the shopping channel. <laughs> I can't say I, I do know I, that channel, actually. I had to be a producer, a midnight producer in Peterborough in a warehouse. It's just like that's Ideal World is just, it's like a big Argos, basically, with <laughs> one, someone. One man showing, and a camera. Yeah. That's, that's literally, that's all it is. And, um, and they wouldn't give me a job. <laughs> so I ended up, I started a website um, that was, uh, it was sort of in the in the very bloggy days. It was 2005. So it was a, um, a celebrity news website that I treated, because I had nothing else to do. I treated it like a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I published, there we had a new story went up every hour between, I think, 10 and 5 every day, wow. no matter what. Uh, and most of the time I was writing it all. So it was my whole day just knocking out sort of funny, sarcastic news stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, 
it was fun, but it was exhausting. And then from there, I thought, oh, no, from there, uh, the Guardian ran a list of the 50 most, fa- pa- 50 most powerful blogs in the world. And my blog was on it. Oh, so wow. I thought, oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, we were... Now, I, now I, I, I am a journalist and I make that sort of list. I know that you, if you have to do a list of 50 anything, like the, maybe the first 10 are the ones you really think are the powerful blogs. And then you just, whatever website someone's got open on a different computer, you throw that in just to make numbers. And we were way down, so that's clearly what had happened. <laughs> but, you, but you got on it, crucially. That was the... Yeah, the... yeah. <laughs> it was incredibly mercenary. I got in touch with uh, uh, a sub-editor that I followed on Twitter, and they gave me the address of an editor. And the editor was off sick, so the stand-in editor sort of commissioned me. And it was just, it was just a real uh, sort of shamelessly aggressive getting my foot in the door really Mm -hmm. just any opportunity i could and did you when you were writing the jokes for charlie brooker pretending Mm. to be charlie brooker did did you ever meet charlie brooker did you have any connection with charlie Brooker? yeah yeah yeah. yeah. a little bit yeah we it it was um there they had a small company and just before i started they were sold to endemol the tv uh, production Mm -hmm. company the big tv company um so i went into the office i traveled into london every day which was a like a four hour round trip every day um and they they he was yeah he was there he was very quiet and he was very busy as well he was writing at the television version of his website tv go home at the time Mm -hmm. which is why he didn't have the the um the time to do the the sort of the online quiz i guess but it was him and um three other guys neil webster peter holmes and ben cordell and they've all gone on to do like enormous things. One was head of entertainment for Channel Four for a while. One um, is does it's either um, uh, eight out of ten cats or would I lie to you or both. So right. he's like the big okay. channel show guy. Um, and one is I think one's just written a, a show that sounds an awful lot like Game of Thrones, and BBC Two have bought it. Right. Okay. So they're they're all very successful. Oh. And you were yeah. you were within touching distance of that, <laughs> touching distance of greatness, and then yanked <laughs> away from it very quickly. <laughs> but but then I suppose Charlie Brooker kind of uh, preceded you in terms of the the TV critic on mm. the Guardian. Was that immediately yeah. before you? Yeah, or? and I I always loved his stuff uh, mm-hmm. um, at university. It was always we'd always buy like the dirty boys who lived in our house would always buy the Guardian and sort of share the guide because he had his screenbone column. Mm-hmm. Which was just, I think to this day, probably the best television criticism column of, of my lifetime that I can remember mm-hmm. reading. Yeah, uh, so I was a bit yeah, quietly. I don't. I don't think I ever talked to him. I never had a proper conversation with him because I was terrified because I was kind of awestruck a little bit. So then, when you got into the Guardian, when you got, or you, when you got into t- in touch with, was it the Guardian? Sorry, after your website, is that how it? Uh, yes, yeah, it was. To, yeah, yeah. So how did that? How did that happen, and, and what did you start writing then? Um, very similar uh, to what I do now. It was a t- it was a TV blog. Right, uh, it was the first thing I pitched um, to the television editor, and they said yes, uh, quite easily. Actually, it's so it's the thing about being freelance. I love is I'm terrible at um, job interviews. I'm so bad at job interviews. I get nervous and I clam up, and I don't like my body becomes awkward. But when you're when you're a freelancer, you can just pitch people 
Uh, you can send them an email saying, can I write about this? And if they say yes, then you're just judged on your work and not how mm-hmm. sort of weird of a person you are. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only way I've ever had any success in my life is by n- emailing people instead of actually... <laughs> I think the rise of WhatsApp and stuff has definitely meant it's easier to, to text people, etc., rather than ever having to actually phone them or meet them. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, I, uh, and I, I shouldn't because I'm a journalist and you need to talk to people. But if I have to phone someone, it, that's, a, that's like a 20-minute ramping up of like, okay, come on, I can do this, I can do this. <laughs> and so through all, all this time when you're doing your work on the columns and you're, and you're working, were you working on stories at, at the same time or was that something that came l- much later? Um, stor- what do you mean by stories? As in, as in were, were you working on writing books as well or was oh, books um, that came a lot later on? That, yeah, that took a little while. I always wanted to write, this is embarrassing and not a great thing to admit, but I wanted to write a book, but I wasn't sure what sort of book I wanted to write. And I was basically, I think I was just waiting for someone to tell me instead of coming up with my own idea. So it took a while. And I had a meeting with a really nice agent, a lovely agent, a literary agent from a big literary agency. And I just sat there and he was telling me, like, well, we could do this or we could do this. And I was like, yeah, OK, but you have to tell me what the idea is because I haven't made <laughs> And I, I learned that sort of quite quickly, they, uh, if you don't have any ideas, they don't really want to work with you. <laughs> I was technically on their books, but because I wasn't sort of active in, in my participation, they, they, I just never heard from them. So, yeah, that was it was kind of just really naive of me i just thought you go you get an agent they say great write this and you write it and then it's a book uh so it wasn't it wasn't it took maybe when did i write my first book that was it came out in 2017 i think i think think that's yeah so that was that i've been writing for the guardian for seven years by the time it came out but it did um the first book i wrote was a uh it was a biography of my brother yeah. Who is just not not a not a famous person? He's just a, he's just a bit of a wanker. <laughs> yeah, for those for those that uh, don't know, uh, the title of the book is "Don't Be a Dick, Pete." That's yeah, he yeah. loves that. He loves it. <laughs> yeah. But that came that came from my journalism in in a sense because he made me do a tough. Do you know what a tough mudder is? Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah it's a, just a horrible assault course. I did one and a few years ago, actually. You did one. Yeah, yeah. How, did you enjoy it? I did actually. I, I didn't think. I think because I I hate running, and so there was. I loved the parts. Anything that was not running, I enjoyed. I, I hate running as well, but chose not to do a tough mud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's the more sensible thing to do. For <laughs> is to do something that involves no running, rather than it's, it's like twelve miles or something, isn't it? It's something like that. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. but it was, no, it was quite a lot. Of fun. Fine, it was they, a, it was a boiling hot day, and and so I actually ended up looking forward to the ice cold baths. Yeah, it was. If it'd been raining, not as much fun. I did two. Oh wow! Uh, the second one was on a very hot day, but the the ice bath thing had melted and it stank of sheep shit, and I got <laughs> really, really poorly for a week afterwards. Oh yeah, that's and right. I, I think it's because I just consumed a lot of sheep poo. Yeah, there was there was a bunch of folk got sick after our one as well. I think from just <laughs> you're just crawling through shit though for ages. How are these things still alive? <laughs> and you pay extortion and what a money yeah, to do it's, it. <laughs> it's so expensive. I got a t-shirt though at the end, so that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a t-shirt, and a, I got 
at the end of my second one, they gave me a pint of alcoholic ginger beer, which is, I think, the most <laughs> disgusting thing that you can drink. <laughs> Horrible. Um, so, yeah, I did. I, I, Pete made me do one of those, and I wrote about it for the paper. And it was, it was supposed to be about um, Tough Mudders, but it just ended up being about how much I dislike my brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my editors, because my, they're the kind of guardian-y people and they live in Islington and they don't really get outside of that bubble. They, they were like, is he a real person? Is your brother a real person? <laughs> and that kind of uh, led me in a sort of a sort of circuitous way to writing this book about him. But that I, the core of that idea came from my newspaper writing. And before we get into the, the sort of uh, meat of, of that book, it's written in the same I would say it's written in the same sort of style as your columns, obviously, um, mm-hmm. but in that sort of uh, very humorous, but very, you know, sh- an eye for detail, but delivered in a humorous way, which when you're writing a column every week or something must be quite a difficult thing to to keep doing, I would have thought. You know, I, I'm all, always like to read the columns of uh, like your ones or Marina Hyde or someone like that, mm-hmm. that it's just... There's always a cutting line in it that you just think is brilliant, but you'd never, certainly I would never come up with myself. Each week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the hard part that I always found was it was each week and there would be some weeks where nothing would happen. Yeah. And you'd just be just scraping around trying to get, I think they've, they've altered it because I had a column in G2. They've altered the layout of the page now. So it used to be one. 900 word column but now it's a sort of a 700 word and a 300 word and maybe a 100 word so it's broken up a bit and it's a bit shorter but getting 900 words out of a a week when nothing had happened Mm -hmm. was just like it was like pulling teeth i kind of in a way i'm i i love marina hyde so much i think she's by far the best thing about the guardian Mm -hmm. and i'm enjoying reading her at the moment because just there's so much material for her to work with. Yeah. But I couldn't imagine being, having, being, she writes, I think it's, it's two news columns a week. Um, and it's just exhausting being able to, and it, her, her stuff is so dense as well with jokes. And yeah. It word uh-huh. I mean, I, th- I don't know how she does it. It's, it's amazing. Well, I mean, it, it is that, isn't it? That you, the, it's not in terms of word count. If you look at, you know, the, the the basic word count. I know you're saying 900 words is a lot when there's nothing happening. But you know, if you look at it, it's not a huge word count on its own, and you're you're doing that once or twice a week. But mm. it's it's getting all of that. You know, it's making it that thing that everyone buys the Guardian or goes to the Guardian yeah. website for that is so difficult, and that is the skill in it. I think. I yeah, mean, I mean, do you structure when you were writing? You, you know, even if it was a TV thing or not a TV thing or whatever, how would you would you sort of plan it out, or would you just start writing and and let it let it go? Where I it went? I kind of I do a little bit of both. I tend to do a bit of both. I start writing. It takes me a long time to think of an opening normally, mm-hmm. and that's always the, the hardest part. Um, but once I've kind of once I've got there. I tend to, um, and this is something I got from when I wrote the website and I had an hour to turn out a story every, yeah. uh, like, um, is you think about it very quickly and then I just make, oh, it's almost like one, one or two words per paragraph. So I can kind of structure 
the arguments I want to make and the observations I want to make. And that, that at least gives me a bit of a path to getting through it. I've done it before, and I've, I've done it quite recently, where you start writing something, not really knowing what you want to say, and it's just a chore to get through it. And you yeah. can probably tell reading it. It's, they're, they're never the, the best ones to read. And you do sort of, you find yourself getting close to the word count and you, like, and you think, come on, just 150 words more. <laughs> and then you get there and then you haven't really said anything interesting. And, but you've just, yeah, that's, you just turn the work in. That's not, that's never a great feeling. But it happens sometimes. <laughs> and when you, when you come to edit this, I think it, if, if it's been a really good day and you've written, you know, 1200 words, et cetera, mm-hmm. how do you work out, how do you get down to that magic number? How do you know what to cut and what to keep? Um, I'm uh, now I've got to the point of of being quite good at structuring it from the outset that I know if it's if it's a sometimes it's a 600 word blog and I know that I can sort of come up with 600 I I know what a 600 word idea is as opposed to a 900 word Uh or a 600 word um I find I always find reading it back out loud is is a good bit is is a really good trick mm-hmm. because um, I know a few people who do it and they all say the same thing is you can tell when you when you get bored or when there's repetition or something when it when it feels doesn't feel great to read it back that's always the bit that you cut yeah I think that's probably true of any writing like even yeah I mean we write uh, fiction stuff but uh, especially you know if you're doing a scene with dialogue and stuff it, yeah. it, com- it comes to life yeah. if you read it, if you hear it out loud rather than than reading yeah. it on the page definitely it makes a huge difference there's one i've noticed in this uh, i just wrote a book that came out uh, a month ago or three weeks mm-hmm. ago um and some i read out loud some i didn't and one i didn't read out loud i read out loud for the first time at an event and I was just sort of editing it in my head, going, that shouldn't be in there. That one shouldn't be in there. Oh, I've used that one too many times. And I was kind of, I, the reading that I gave, it was, I'll tell, it was at the Booksellers Association. So it was oh, yeah. a big sort of launch event. I found myself kind of editing it on the fly and reading out the version that I'd wish I'd read. <laughs> I wish I'd read instead of the one that was actually in the book. That's but the, it's still good and you should buy it and everything, you know. But. Well, that's the, that's the bedtime stories for, Worried liberals, worried book, liberals, which yeah. is which I read recently, and it is it's it's excellent. It's very very funny, and oh, um, it's obviously very impacted by the state of the world and the politics that we're in right now. Um, and is that is that? What, I, got, I got the feeling that each story was kind of what you wanted your views on topics, and you're like, "This is my view on the referendum," and so I'm going to write a, yeah. a story about yeah. it, just just this one point of view you had. Uh, yeah, I tried, I tried to, um, do that because I, the book is loosely based on the publisher came to me sort of with the idea and said, we've got the rights to, uh, this thing. And there was a book called, um, politically correct fairy tales or something like that um, that yes. came out in the mid nineties and sold millions and millions of copies. It's crazy how, how well it sold. It's got a cover quote from Bill Clinton. <laughs> and it was published when Bill Clinton was the president. That's how, <laughs> how much of a big deal it was. Wow. So mine is my book's going to be such a disappointment compared to that. Trump, I, don't, I can't see Trump giving you a quote. You could probably <laughs> get Trump to give you a quote. Oh God, I would, you know, I'd, I'd let I'd, I'd let it happen as well. I'd let him, I'd let him do it. A tweet. Um, you must tweet about just it. Just pre- just do a tweet praising him, and then <laughs> and then oh, he's, yes. 
<laughs> He'll I mean, retweet it immediately. That that was my favourite one of. He doesn't of do the... that so much anymore, does he? There was that, that period of time where people would just show pictures of like uh, old man steps yeah, and say, "This is my <laughs> granddad. He's a great supporter," and he'd retweet it. The uh, the Trumpelstiltskin story was my favourite one, I think, which is obviously based on the Rumpelstiltskin story, and it's written from. It's all in his kind of prose and that kind of weird rambling, repetitive way he has. And was that was it hard to? Or was it easy to get into that kind of style? It was history? actually, it was really hard. I did it thinking it would be easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I've written, uh, it's, uh, it's Trumpel Siltskin, obviously, which is the easiest pun in the world. Um, <laughs> but I I couldn't figure out a way of retelling the story and folding in him. So I made I made Donald Trump the narrator. Mm-hmm. And it's, he, 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 talks in such a word salad that it's really difficult to, to kind of find the patterns. And mm-hmm. there are some things he does where he'll just repeat um, exaggerations over and over again. So I did that. But there was a lot of listening to his speeches I found myself doing and interviews. God. Which is <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to spend a morning. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I tried to, in going back to the, the thing, the point of view things, um, because I am, I am a worried liberal, which is really helpful. I, I yeah, I, 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 I tried to sort of speak for everyone I knew, most people mm-hmm. except for my dad. Everyone I knew. Um, <laughs> I dedicated the book to my dad, and yes, I saw him yesterday, and he said he's scared to read it because he doesn't <laughs> think he'll agree with anything in it. Well, that's why um, I, I kind of wonder that because obviously the it's the whole book takes a very firm side on the on the liberal scale of things whatever and and which is which is fine and 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 i kind of wondered is it important when you're writing a book like that to take a firm side or is the worry that you alienate too much of your audience if you do um i i try not to the 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 writing the political writing that i enjoy the most are ones that aren't sort of as um prescriptive as as some of the others maybe so that i find a lot of especially opinion writing at the moment is people who are just absolutely convinced that they're right about something. Mm-hmm. And that, it, that gets really tedious to, to, um, to read. I always like f- trying if I can to try and fold in elements of the opposing argument, mm-hmm. which is something I used to watch. I used to watch the Simpsons on DVD a lot and I listened to all the commentaries. Uh, and that's something they, that the writers always did. If they wanted to make a point, they found it was they would do it much more powerfully if they had the opposing voice included in it. So it wasn't, it, you didn't feel like you were being lectured if, if yeah. there was like a yeah. side character who came up and said, Oh, but what about this? And I've kind of, I've taken that to heart a little bit. So there's, there are stories in there where it's kind of, there's one called the three liberal pigs, which <laughs> is the three little pigs just have arguments with each other because they don't completely ideologically line up with each other. Uh, and it, and that's how I kind of I feel about the left at the moment. Mm-hmm. That like oh like it's everything is in touching distance. If we could just if yeah yeah if we could just stop beating each other up because someone <laughs> no, said it, something ten years ago that everyone disagrees with. Yes, now. it's absolutely. it's very much it, this is almost veering into politics, so I won't stay on it for very long. <laughs> but um, it, it is very much a thing of the of the liberal or left thing to do that to try and incorporate other people's views unless you're talking about the very extreme side of it but mm. whereas i think if the more right-wing minded people uh, don't mind not incorporating <laughs> the yeah. views of other people in it 
So it, and that's why they're in power because yeah. they can just like punch through everything. Uh-huh. And be like, oh, I don't care about. Again, that's another Simpsons joke. It's one of my favourites. Is uh, they go to the uh, Democratic convention and their slogan is "We hate ourselves." And then they go to the Republican um, <laughs> convention, and it's like we hate everyone else. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, exactly. yeah, that's how you get power is just by by hating everyone else more than you hate yourself. That's right. That and putting a lot of Facebook ads out there. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Well, it is. Yeah, uh, the 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 stuff they're doing in America at the moment with the false or trying to taste Facebook as oh, to how much false yes. news you can put in an advert and stuff mm. like that. But I saw today that Zuckerberg has banned the kind of emojis that look like, um, you know, penises, etc. So the, the, the aubergine emoji has been banned, but he's happy to keep on But Nazis you can still, and, oh my yeah. God, you can still illegally fund <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Christ. Just the priorities seem to be completely out of whack. <laughs> yeah. He did so badly at that hearing. Did you watch it? I saw pictures of it. I didn't actually watch the whole thing. Yeah, he was just... It, because his uh, his whole idea is that Facebook is just you know it, it's a thing and whatever and it speaks for everyone and he just collapsed. And I was watching I was watching Silicon Valley um, first episode of that and it's great they they have it's just fortuitous timing that it happened but it opened with a, a state hearing that went with a tech guy that went horribly wrong. <laughs> oh, is that the new series? Is that out now? Is it? Yeah. Uh, oh, it's really good. Oh, it's really good. If you can watch it, you should. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Well, I, I love the. Yeah, uh, I've, I've watched awesome. all of them up until the new series, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. It's the last. They series, really. I I, yeah. I wrote about it this week, but they they're really going hard for the tech giants this year. Brilliant. And there are just so many jokes about how much, how like morally problematic Facebook is. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how much Anyway, sorry, we're straying off target a bit. We're getting back. Yes, I know. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> let's go back. Bedtime stories for worried liberals is a sort of series of short stories, as we've discussed. But the first yeah. bit is about your... It's about your brother, but it's almost like a, a memoir or, you know, it's mm. about you and your brother and the relationship that you have and all that sort of stuff. But again, yeah. it's a really funny book. Like, mm-hmm. Without a word of a lie, it, I have had to, I had to put it down several times when I was reading it on the Kindle at night because I was trying not to laugh and wake my wife up. Oh my God. That's <laughs> the, the nicest compliment I've ever had. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, some of the stories in there are just, are just brilliant. But, and obviously there are also the chapters in the book where you say, I've now let Pete read this chapter and then yeah. you hear about all of that. Was there anything in that? Like, did you speak to Pete before you even started writing the book and say, I'm going to write this book about you? <laughs> or did you just go for it and then show him show him some of the writing? I told him and he was kind of flattered and a little bit, um, little bit suspicious. But the good thing about my brother is he's incredibly, incredibly vain. Yeah. So if, if he tells you there's going to be a book <laughs> about him uh, and with the topless picture of him, in his sort of in the gym mirror <laughs> in the middle. Then he was, so he went for it. Um, the publisher made him sign a disclaimer saying that he was completely fine with everything. So that's, that's why there are partly, be, I liked, I liked it as a sort of a device of go, always going back to Pete for him to correct me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it felt fairer that way. But also it was, it was a way of getting around this disclaimer 
Mm-hmm. Saying that he wouldn't, he wouldn't sue uh, uh, <laughs> Random House. And when you were when you were writing that that book, obviously by this point you've been writing your columns for a number of years now. Yeah. And how did the process? Was it a similar process writing reach, or did you find one was harder or easier than the other? The the book I found was really difficult. I had I had to almost treat it, and I think it probably reads like it. I haven't read it properly for a while, um, but it. I had to really break it down into kind of column-sized chunks and kind of stitch them into into chapters because I just I really struggled with just holding a huge like that the uh, a, a book-length narrative in my in my mm-hmm. head mm-hmm. was I found very very difficult and un- intimidating and overwhelming. Um, so the only way to do it was to break it up into pieces, and I'm I'm kind of. I think I might be able to say this. Probably, I'm in the process of uh, potentially turning it into a film script. Oh, wow! Oh, cool. um, I, I can see. And that. it's well, it's 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 a pain in the ass because there isn't a story in the book. <laughs> it's all just kind of scattershot stories about crap things that he did when he was a kid. And going back and so, tr- trying to sort of translate it into a into a streamlined narrative is really difficult because it's it's. It was designed to be all over the place. I wanted it to be kind of um, a bit of a shaggy dog story, mm-hmm. but yeah, trying trying to trying to find the spine of it is is quite hard at the moment. Yeah, is even when the book was put together, if you wrote it in that sort of way of saying, right, here's a story about this, here's a story about that, when you give it to your agent. Or sorry, your publisher. Sorry, um, mm-hmm. uh, did they help? Did they? Did you, was there any restructuring of the story at, at that yeah. point to try and make it a more coherent book as opposed to a yes. series of columns? Yeah, uh, and that was very painful and arduous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a meeting where I wanted it to be the the idea that the initial idea that I had in my head was for it to be almost sort of like a David Sedaris book. Oh, yeah. Where you tell tell a, a big story about someone or something, um, but not necessarily in the order that it happened. And sort of over the course of reading it, you'd, you'd piece together the picture. Um, and that's what I did. And I, and I gave it to my editors, and they were like, well, why, why every time you jump backwards and forwards, you're having to re-explain everything. Uh, so why don't you just put it in the order that it happened? And it made a lot of sense, and it made the book better. It gives a much better idea than the one I had. Mm-hmm. But it um, it was just so much work, kind of restringing it and rethreading it and taking bits out. And it got to the point there is a chapter in it, or half a chapter, or uh, an aside, where I I think I say I'm on holiday now, finishing yeah, this book. That's right, and we've just France. had a massive yeah, yeah. fight. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, <laughs> That's partly because it was true and I was just having the worst holiday, of, literally the worst holiday of my life. Um, and everyone was fighting and it was horrible. Um, and it was also because I've realised that it's the book is 80,000 words long and the sum total of my entire life is about 78,000 words. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, was, there was a lot, there was just a moment of panic of being like, I, I have to write this, this has to be longer than it is. So I was just writing about things that were happening at the moment they were happening. <laughs> the lesson I think is if you're going to write a memoir, wait until you're in your 40s or 50s because don't do it in your mid 30s. Yeah, it's, it's a bull. Not, not enough's happened to you. <laughs> yeah. And then, and how do you, when it comes to writing humour, do you, it's just quite a, I suppose a subjective thing in some ways, you know, things 
one person finds funny, other people won't at all. And do you, That's do what you the comments that? tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you test? Did you test chapters out on your on test readers, your wife, etc.? Do you have folk Yeah, folk? my wife is a big. Uh, she reads everything first. Okay. Because uh, she's she's also a writer. Okay. Um, so we're always we're always sort of throwing when we write we always throw things backwards and forwards. Except we're not. She's writing a book now, and I've and it's her first book, and I'm desperate. It's going to be amazing. But I've only read a tiny piece of it, and it's driving me nuts because I know she's got more that she hasn't. She isn't showing me. <laughs> what what uh, sort of book is it? Oh, it's it's called. She's she had. Um, do you remember the pool the website? The pool. It was yeah. for women. No, no. Uh, it was it was Lauren Laverne was a founder and okay. Sam Baker who, and it was like it was really sort of good. Um, yeah, women's website. And she was a parenting author and she wrote, she's written about her mental health problems, which are extensive and sort of historical. And she was, um, she was a shut in for four years right. in her twenties. Okay. She didn't leave the house. And it's a really, it's an amazing story. And it's called, um, reasons to be fearful. All right. Okay. And it's going to be, it's like, I think she's pitching it as a, like a Matt Haig reasons to yeah. stay alive, yeah, yeah. but with a bit less optimism (laughs) (laughs) but she's she's such a funny writer she's i I can't wait to read it but yeah so yeah um uh what are we talking about so yeah she reads it i i send it to i have a friend who we always send each other what we're writing but i i kind of i feel like i have to trust my instincts as well if if, if it's humor i i feel like i know what i know what's funny and what isn't yeah you, there has to come a time when you're just like well this yeah. this is funny this is why i'm writing it yeah. if you yeah. if you if you didn't do that then you you'd stop writing i suppose if you and i think as well if you if you laugh at it or if you know if you if you and your mates laugh at it then that means someone finds it funny yeah so, at least know, at least <laughs> they'll be <laughs> And I suppose, and how else do you know? There's no way of knowing if anyone, if a lot of other people will, but if, if you reach one or two people, then that's enough yeah. to have a I suppose. Yeah, that's something I might, I have an aunt who, when I was back, when I was trying to write and I, emailing all these people and getting, getting, not getting anywhere, that's basically something she told me. She was like, well, if you, if you think it's good and it makes you laugh, then it's probably other people will as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just, I think she just said it to cheer me up and get me out of her house, but it's really, it's really stuck with me. And it's, I always find that it's, it's, it's the, I mean, the book is very specific about, uh, you know, a time and a place and, uh, a certain type of upbringing. But I think I always, I always think that the more specific you are when you write, the more, the harder that people, people will connect with it. Yeah. I think that's definitely right. It, yeah, it, it take it puts you right in that moment. The more specific you are, mm-hmm. rather than you know, you know, describing your town and the house and all that sort of stuff brings you into the story much more. I think definitely. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, commentators there, and obviously, being a, a journalist who writes uh, columns and stuff, you'll be subjected to, I'm sure, a lot of below the line commentators and all that on your on your <laughs> yeah. columns. I mean, how how do you deal with that, or do you just ignore them? You know, because I just ignore them now. Yeah. I I went through a stage like I I went through a stage a few years ago where I was reading everything and getting very hurt, like really upset <laughs> by things that people were saying. And it made like it gets. I understand why people 
go on about it so much because it does sort of you go through stages where you don't think you're you're doing anything mm-hmm. right and you feel like you're a real failure. Mm-hmm. And the first negative comment I got, I was like, oh, that's me done. I'm a, no, that's my journalism career over. The guy, the editor's going to read this and fire me. Mm-hmm. And then I realized <laughs> it's just indiscriminate. Yeah. Um, so there's no point. And the last time, <laughs> the last, <laughs> the, la- <laughs> the last time I read comments, I uh, tweeted that I something like, "I wish I could drown all internet commenters in a bucket of spunk or something." <laughs> um, and the the editor of G two phoned me up and asked me very politely uh, to take it. Down. <laughs> and I felt obviously I felt horrible, but that's uh, I think if there's a sign that you shouldn't read any more comments. That's it's when you, yeah. you wish death upon anyone who replies to anything ever written on the internet. I mean, that, it is a strange thing. Yeah. If you don't like it, no, yeah. that's fine. Bizarre. You that's don't need to tell I, me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I found, when it happens now, it, sometimes it happens on Twitter and I just immediately mute it mm-hmm. and, and get on with my day instead of letting it kind of ruin my life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but I, yeah, I feel like it's, 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 the internet kind of it depersonalizes people. Yeah. And I think I'm guilty of it as well. If I don't like something on television, I'll go after it sometimes with a uh, um a ferocity that I'll come to regret because they're just people trying their hardest mm-hmm. to yeah. make something good. No no one sets out to make something horrible. Yeah. And I I do feel a bit guilty about being as mean as I am sometimes. But I think the difference is that is that if you're if you're writing a review of something or if you're even if you're if you're tweeting a thought about a show etc you know there's nothing uh, the the person behind the show has to look that out and it's their choice to read or not read it i think when you mm. when people tweet things at the creators or yeah. stuff that's you know there's no choice they're forcing their opinion on on the person and that's not fair yeah no i agree and it's the same it's the same with um newspaper comments you don't have to read them yeah, exactly uh yeah. I do. Oh God, I've got one friend who will sometimes screen grab and uh, WhatsApp me comments, <laughs> and she means it in a in a in a really affectionate way. But then I get them, and I'm like, oh, that someone hates me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so the base solution is to ignore all of yeah. that stuff. Basically. I think so. I think so. The good and I, the bad, I, just, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. For all I know, for all I know, all my comments under everything I write are people telling me how amazing I am. Are you? I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Tell your friend just to WhatsApp you the good stuff. <laughs> I should do. Yeah, just like Trump. I, That's what you need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that worked out well for him, right? He's, he's, he's president. He's a perfectly <laughs> centered human being. <laughs> it took him. It took an entire stadium full of people booing him to just get any inkling that he's not the greatest person in the world. <laughs> that was excellent. I, um, and on, how do you find being on Twitter and things like that? Obviously, it helps with, um, you know, pushing or publicity for what you've written, whether it be books or columns or whatever like mm-hmm. that. But it does have that negative downside as well. But overall, do you is it something you enjoy, enjoy being on or think is useful? Um, um, yeah, there was a, there was a time. When Twitter was new, that I was on it all the time, mm-hmm. and it, I just I thought it, I just thought it was funny and brilliant, and everyone on it was. There was an old, um, an old, I think meme, very early on that was like Facebook is for people who you know in real life but don't like, and Twitter's for people you don't know in real life but love. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's not the case anymore. Now it's just for people to scream their politics. <laughs> <at you. laughs> well, uh, but I do, I do enjoy it. And I, I notice it's, it's when you're trying to get a book written, I found very often that publishers will talk about an author's platform, which is, I think is another way of saying, you know, how, how well known they are. Uh-huh. And the, the, if nothing else, the number of Twitter followers you have is a, is a very quick way to quantify that. Uh-huh. So even on this book, I think I, I, I caught some publicity material that just said how many Twitter followers I have as if that's any sort of indication of worth. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which it isn't, but um, it's it's good to have for that, I guess. I'm finding myself on Instagram more. It's more fun to be on Instagram stories, and because at least that disappears. And you, <laughs> you really, I can pl- I can plug my book as shamelessly as I want on Instagram stories, and I know that in ten years someone's not going to come back and say like you misused a word that we don't use anymore. I mean, yeah, that is the thing that seems to be the flavour of the month right now is is going through folks' tweets and stuff from. Ten years ago, yeah. saying, "Well, you said you had you had this opinion, so therefore you're this person," and it's just yeah, it's not. And it's, I, 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 I don't like it. I've, no. I've deleted. I've just bulk deleted everything up uh, up until a couple of years ago when it happened because I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. Because the person I was, as a sort of in my twenties, who mm-hmm. would, you know, just be. I, well, I, th- I, th- I think people are capable of growth. Yes. In, to put it in too high-minded a way um i think that you know jokes that you think were like funny and a bit edgy mm-hmm. 10 years ago now if you read them without context are just hideous yeah yeah cringy definitely. horrible yeah exactly. yeah so i've just i've taken to just deleting deleting everything uh <laughs> wiping hard drives just burning just yeah burning yeah. burning <laughs> <laughs> Move, shredding. Moving house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shredding every document you've got in this <laughs> um, so is there any more books in your future then you think Stuart yes um, the, I've, I've written a kids book oh, cool. uh, which is out next year um, and Puffin are publishing it and that was that's literally I mean I don't know I, I don't know if it will sell I don't know anything I just wrote it because it was a story I told my, my son and he liked it and I wanted to get it down. So that's out in August. It's called Jonathan the Magic Pony. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> Which is the title came from. I used to just, um, I used to be sort of angrily dismissive of kids uh, writing before I had kids. And I used to say to my wife, oh, I could write kids. But look at this, uh, Jonathan the Magic Pony. And she used to keep bringing it up as an example of a book I should write. And then I made up a story and told my kid, and he liked it. So I thought I'd, I'd actually write it. Oh, brilliant! Um, yeah, and it's fun, and it's you know short, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, and then I, uh, I think I, I've, I really want to write a parenting book mm-hmm. or a sort of a memoir of, of parenting which I've been going on at my agent about for ages. In our very first meeting, I, I talked to him and said that I wanted to write it. And he said, nothing in the entire uh, history of publishing sells worse than parenting books written by men. <laughs> <laughs> with, with good reason. And he's probably right. Yeah. He, says, he says that the books, parenting books written by men are exactly the same as parenting books written by women, except they have the word mate three times a page. <laughs> but... 
I used to, I when my first son was born, I had a, again a column in the Guardian called "Man with a Pram," where I just it was it was me just going, "Oh God, what's this? What's going on?" In kind of in real time, and I found even even doing events with this book, people are um, the thing the thing that people tell me they like the best is that is the old parenting column that I used to write. So I think there's a potential to maybe turn that into a book. Is that would that be a book aimed at new dads as opposed to mums, or would, would it be like from that point I th- of view? I um I I don't know actually. I because because weirdly I think most the people who read the column were mums. Okay. Overwhelmingly, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I think there's just I and I don't think enough men write about fatherhood in general. There are there are a few really good people who do it, but there aren't enough, and. I think if it's done well, I think it could, it would do all right and it would resonate with people. It'll be interesting. Like, it is interesting the way things like this is going to kids' programs as well, but having two kids, young kids myself, <laughs> um, something like the way the parent, the, the dad is portrayed in Peppa Pig and stuff like that. Oh, is, yeah. Is, as the a, big as, idiot. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the mum is always sort of rolling her eyes and going, "I'll oh, sort it out." No, I remember reading books as a kid, and it was the exact same. The dad was always the, the clown who was yeah. mucking up, and it was the mum who was like saving the day. Which is probably because yeah. it's true. <laughs> <laughs> he says after his wife put the kids to bed, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. How old are your kids? Uh, my kids are uh, nine and six. Oh, okay. My, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Right. Okay. So you, does it get does it get easier? It, it does get easier <laughs> eventually. They sleep, which is which oh is, god, uh, which I can't is wait. I can't. <laughs> My oldest one is waking up even with the even with the clock changes. He's waking up at half past four. Oh god! Every morning, and I'm kind of on. Him, him duty, and my wife's on the younger one duty. Who sleeps until like half past seven? Yeah. So I'm always having to sort of crawl into his bedroom and just be like, "Do you want to watch your iPad? What do you want to do?" And then just sitting there with my eyes closed. Until <laughs> exactly. I know. It's acceptable. To no, go it, it does. It makes a difference when they actually are able to sleep during the night, which oh, it takes a lot longer than people tell you initially. I have to say, but it, it does happen eventually. And, yeah. and then, yeah, they come out with some some classic lines as my six-year-old came down the stairs the other day shouting at her sister, eh, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but you've broken my heart. I can't <laughs> oh, be your friend God. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we know who the drama queen of the family is going to be. <laughs> my my four-year-old, I was, do, I was doing a poo the other day and I left my kids just in the living room and some sort of commotion was happening and my four-year-old burst into the toilet and shouted at me and went, your son is playing badly. <laughs> That's the point that he's at now where he can describe a two-year-old as being my son, whereas he's some distant celestial. It is, oh, there's, God. there's something very funny about young kids speaking like an adult. I think that's what it is. <laughs> It's, it, it's kind of the first time my, my four-year-old swore was <laughs> horrifying, but also the most hilarious thing. Was it a good word? It was, um, he went through a big phase of calling everyone dick face. I just learned to drive last year and, um, and he, I think from just sitting in the back <laughs> the car while I was driving, he just his vocabulary just went off in a horrible new direction. Uh, so yeah. he'd just sitting there going, "Dick face, dick face, 
Dick face, dick face. <laughs> it's like that Will Ferrell sketch uh, with his. Oh, I love that. The landlord. Yeah, yeah, the landlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's brilliant. <laughs> um, so what, so you've got that book coming out and you've got, you're working on the script for Don't Be a Dick Pete. Um, yeah. And, and obviously still writing, uh, columns and stuff. Is, the, is there anything else in the, in the, fu- in the pipeline or is, I mean, that's um, a pretty full plate. <laughs> it's, it's quite, there is, there is the possibility that there'll be a, a, a TV series as well based on, this is a lovely thing that happens, uh, when you write a book, but I don't know if it happens to everyone, but I, the, the don't be a dick Pete TV rights were sold to one company, uh, but another company wanted it. And instead of just being, you know, sad and bitter, they said, well, do you want to try and develop a, a series on your own about something else? Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, and yeah. I was, I sort of, I sort of thought, I, I, yeah. And it took a lot of, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of development. It took, months and months and months just to get a pilot script out but it's it's done and it's out and it's being read by by people and it might come to something it might not i don't know i've got no kind of um frame of reference really for for if it's if it's if it'll ever make it to screen but it's been a really good experience to write it that sounds like a great opportunity yeah it was it was it was nice and it's with a really nice company who are very sort of supportive and it's it's taught me because I've never really written fiction before, mm. long form long form fiction. Just how important story is, yeah, uh-huh. um, and just how sort of tightly plotted something can be. And it's just it's just I had I had ideas for a series, and they all went into the first episode because <laughs> I thought. I kind of, I, I, I approached it like I would with a column where, where you kind of, you have one idea and you think, well, I can just sort of meander for a bit here and amusingly. And then, but you can't, you can't do that with fiction. It has to, it's, it has to be a real sort of a locomotive. And, and how, how have you found it writing scripts compared to your books and your columns? Um, I have quite enjoyed it. I, I should have said this at the beginning. I, the, uh, I have a degree in script writing. Okay. <laughs> We'll, we'll oh, so it's easy. We'll edit that and put that at the start of the podcast. Yeah, I went. I did. I went to Bournemouth University and did a degree in scratching, which I did. Like, I did. I got a two two, so I wasn't very good at it because I didn't really understand. <laughs> I didn't understand university or script writing, and I didn't. Two important uh, parts, probably, for the course. Yeah, really important because <laughs> that was that entire thing. Yeah, um, but I kind of, I, I. I completely forgot about it. That was in sort of 2000, I think I graduated in 2002. So I spent 15 years just completely forgetting everything I'd ever learned at university. And then over the, over the course of this last year, I've had to be sort of pull out my old sort of lessons and stuff that I'd learned. So it's, it, I'd got sort of half the way there, but it was still learning on the job. I felt like I was really learning on the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't do a degree in script writing. If you're listening to it, it's, it's a weird <laughs> thing. You can't you can't go to Hollywood and wave your no, fucking that's right, yeah. degree around at everyone and be like, actually, I think you'll find I'm guy have the qualifications. <laughs> that's not that, they don't pick you that way. No, no. I mean, from what we've heard, it's much harder to break yeah. into you know script writing than it is mm-hmm. even yeah. to writing a book and stuff like that because yeah, it's just having um, getting that foot in the door is so, yeah. so much harder. Yeah. yeah, and then there are just I, I think there are more although. I've you know reject you get rejected when you you write start writing whatever, but the 
there are so many different levels at which someone can say no if you're writing television or a film. Mm-hmm. Right, all the way up to, I mean, the uh, the the. I just heard today the game of there's a Game of Thrones prequel that was commissioned mm-hmm. and written and cast and shot and edited, mm-hmm. and it took eighteen months, and now they've just pulled the plug on it, so mm-hmm. no one's ever going to see it. So that just every level is an opportunity to to for it to not happen. Yeah. Whereas I think with a book, once you have the idea and, you, and you've written it, then it's yours and it can be published. Yeah. And there are there are a lot fewer sort of hurdles. Yeah. Yeah. And it can sit on a shelf and no one can ever pick it up. Sometimes, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, it's there. But it's, it's there. yours and it's a thing. <laughs> exactly. And it's all. It's everything. I found. Writing, I had a job. I didn't mention this either. I think uh, writing for a television program when I was ten years ago, eleven years ago, um, a Channel Four show called Tonightly, mm-hmm. which was they wanted it to be the Daily Show. Okay. Uh, for for Great Britain, and it wasn't. It was terrible. <laughs> uh, but I was on the writing staff for it, and you do that, and it was literally they'd say we want fifty jokes about a penguin. Go and write fifty jokes about a penguin. So you'd spend a day or a few hours thinking about penguins from every conceivable angle and dedicating like every ounce of your effort to penguins. And then maybe if one of them gets used on the air, that's, that's a good, that's a good day's work, mm-hmm. which is, it's a really inefficient way of working, but yeah. with a book, it's all you. And yeah, yeah, your editor will have a say, but it's not, you know, you, you, you're not sort of subject to the whims of, a script editor and the presenter who is you know has his own stuff going on and then oh yeah it's crazy it's crazy yeah definitely i I mean even script even successful screenwriters are ending up having to rewrite scenes on the day of the shooting it's amazing how often you hear that and you think i mean that must be terrifying to be rewriting a scene moments before the film is (laughs) exactly yeah yeah, that that's really scary. I can't think on my feet at all. Um, that's why I like being being a writer because I can hide behind someone and think things through until my idea is in the shape I want it to be, and then sort of anonymously send it to people. Yeah. I'm I'm bad. I, there's like I said, I can never. I'm never good in job interviews because I can't think on my feet. In that situation, I I would think I'd just fold completely. So what was the what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read was um, "I Never Said I Love You" by Rick Samada. All right, okay, yeah, the he's written for the uh, Guardian and stuff. Yeah, 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 he's he sent me a copy of it, and I I've been desperate to read it, and it's great. Is it funny? It is funny, which mm-hmm. considering what it's about is amazing mm-hmm. it's a very it, it's a very very dark story and it could have been it could have turned almost into one of those you know um oh i can't remember the guy the, the child name it books that were popular oh, yeah. a few years ago it could have very easily turned into something tonally similar to that but rick is such a, he's such a good funny empathetic writer that it's 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 really enjoyable Brilliant. And horribly moving, but it's really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll check that out for sure. Yeah, it's great. Um, and what was the last film you saw? Um, the last film I saw at the cinema was Joker. Oh, yeah, nice. You fan of yeah. it? I liked it. I, 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 yeah. I didn't like it as much as, as my wife, who really loved it. Um, 
but it was it was all right. It was pretty good. I still I'm still thinking about it because he they did that clever thing where they never they don't explain things and it feels like it felt a bit arbitrary in the film that they were just putting things in that were deliberately um, ambiguous. Yeah, you don't yeah. know if they happened or not. Yeah, yeah, and it it felt a little bit rote, but it worked because I'm still. Mm-hmm. reading constantly theories about what might have happened and what might not have happened. I mean, my only, I mean, I really liked it and I liked him, but my only issue, I suppose, with it is that it's you only get one, there's no counterpoint really to his point of view. Um, yeah. You're, yeah. Ne- you're never, like, Thomas Wayne is is a dick. You know, you mm-hmm. never. You, there's no hint that yeah. anything he believes is actually wrong. Um, yeah. It, from that point of view, obviously there's the doubts about other things, but his worldview isn't really questioned that much. Which um, although do you only ever see Thomas Wayne from the Joker point of view? I suppose maybe. I think you see it. It's everyone's from yeah. the Joker. Yeah. It's all, you yeah. don't Even, see any other point because he has that girlfriend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wasn't his girlfriend. Yeah, I suppose anything. But but you're right. There's no there's 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 no Batman to show you that what he's doing is wrong. It's up to the viewer to mm. say that. Yeah, and if you're yeah, if you're not perhaps as level headed as we are, <laughs> then yeah. You could, yeah. I saw I read a tweet that really made me laugh the other day, and it said that um, three weeks ago everyone thought the worst thing that the joke would do would you know be like inspire a wave of sort of incel murderers. Mm-hmm. But the worst thing that's actually happened is that a bunch of tourists have gone to a set of staircases and danced around dressed up as clowns. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> they uh, gentrified a staircase, that's what they said. <laughs> um, what was the last TV show that you watched? Or, or what TV show are you watching? Oh, I suppose Silicon Valley, maybe. Silicon Valley, I'm, I, which I love so much. Um, but I'm also, I'm re-watching Mad Men as well at the moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is, I, I think... Probably my favourite ever television program. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic show. It's amazing, and it's just about. I was just watching. I'm in the middle of season four. No, just the beginning of season five. And every time I watch it, I can take something new from it, mm-hmm. depending on sort of my life circumstances, which is incredible. It's also got a really a really good ending, which I, I kind of didn't know where yeah. they would go with it, but for Dawn's ending, it was I thought it was kind of perfect actually. Yeah, I loved it. I kind of, I loved how cynical it was as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 He reaches a point of enlightenment and then immediately sells it. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, and the, the, the last thing we do on, on the podcast is a, is a, a quick fire one or the other question. So okay. there is a right or wrong answer. From this <laughs> oh, there is. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> there is for the first one. You've been uh, Johnson or Trump? Oh, God. Um, oh, Oh, um, Johnson. Oh, interesting. Because, oh, oh, just because he doesn't, I think he's, he's, uh, he has a baseline of intelligence. (laughs) Yes, fair enough. He uses it for awful things, but he's, there's a baseline (laughs) of intelligence there. Um, Lost or The Leftovers? Oh, God, I love them both (laughs) so much. Um, oh, no. There's, I love Lost so much. I go on podcasts that are about Lost as guests <laughs> sometimes. But the leftovers, I love the leftovers. Yeah, the leftovers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I think I think it maybe works better as a 
as a whole series left mm-hmm. of Bristol. And Although I loved yeah, Lost as well. They're both great, but I think for me the the, the thing about Lost was that I was always I was always wanting answers, whereas with the leftovers yeah. I would have been would have been happy not really getting any. And I don't know why that is, to be honest. But yeah, I think the leftovers does work better. It's, a, it's also smaller, I suppose. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Watchmen? Yes. Yeah. What do you think of that so far? Uh, well, we were just discussing <laughs> that actually before. I find it it like. It's it's a series I'm watching because I kn- I have the confidence that it's going to be good if you see what right I mean. yes same same um, but it's not grabbed me yet and if frankly if I didn't know the source material um, I would I think I would be entirely lost you know um, yeah. but but because it's Lindelof and you know I've got confidence that it will go somewhere but I, it hasn't grabbed me it's not like oh I can't wait for the next episode. I, no. I I really enjoyed it. I've only seen the first episode. I haven't seen the second one yet, but I I I really really liked it. Yeah, um, I think I liked it more than Marco did. But I I don't know. I just finished reading the comic, um, and I don't know if that had, you know, if that made a difference or not. But yeah, no. I and and although I was parts, I was like, I don't really know why there's squids falling from the sky, etc. But I'm, mm-hmm. I've got the confidence. I'm, yeah, I'm, I've got the confidence to know that I'm happy to be taken with it, and it will take me to a place where I understand. Yeah, that's how I feel about the leftovers. The first series mm-hmm. was such a bummer. Mm-hmm. It was it was just so relentlessly bleak mm-hmm. that it was a struggle to get through. But I felt that by the sort of the second and third seasons, he'd got a handle on the material and he could take it further away from from the source, yeah, from the novel, yeah. And I I have a feeling that he that that's probably something that's going to happen with the Watchmen, yeah. Because I, I, I read the the leftovers of the book and it's 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 fine, but it, I thought the show was much better. And I, but I think you're right. I think the leftovers gets fantastic when it moves away. You know, when you got that scene in season two when he's singing in the karaoke booth, and it's so bizarre, mm. but it it totally yeah. worked. And I, I don't know how, why it worked, but it did. Work. And, and that was not in the book at all, obviously. And yeah, so when he does branch away from the material and go off by himself, it, it is excellent. Yeah. Uh, one more uh, real book or ebook real book although I uh, logically everything about an ebook makes more sense you can take more of them on holiday when you move house it's not such a pain in the ass um, they're cheaper but I, I love real books yeah yeah Oh, they're, they're, they're environmentally, they're less. Oh, all I'm doing is arguing the point. <laughs> <laughs> so, ebook is the answer, then, I think we've. <laughs> yeah, I love real books. I love real books. Yeah. I did. Um, a friend of mine, Daisy Buchanan, has a podcast called Your Booked, where they go through your um, bookshelf and just pick books. And all the, all the stuff I really like, I have on ebook. So it was it was a weird <laughs> talk about books yeah. I kind of got sent and haven't read yet. Yeah. Did you really enjoy your tough mother time? <laughs> I genuinely did. Yes. Um, that, uh, that makes me who mad. doesn't who doesn't love obstacle courses? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, if I could just cut the running part out when you're doing obstacle course. That but keep be, the sheep shit in. But keep the sheep shit, the E. coli and the ruined legs. That would be brilliant. Great. That sounds awesome. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Stuart. Uh, we certainly did. I, I thought it was really fun chat. Actually. Yeah, yeah, a really nice guy. Really, yeah. really, really fun chat. Absolutely. And uh, it was just fascinating, really, how he 
you know, there are some traits there that we've spoken to other writers about that, that are the same in terms of, you know, his determination to get yeah. a job at yeah. the start and the difficulty that he had. But once he got that sort of break with his blog, he then pushed forward with it yeah. and made sure that he would get that column with The Guardian. And I think like most folk we've chatted to, there's always an element of luck involved, but you really do create your own luck. And I think unless you're willing to put yourself out there where you can be seen, you know, it probably won't happen. And I think it's always important that no matter what you're writing, it's getting out there, getting into the world in some form. No, that's totally true. And actually, it was also really interesting hearing how you, how difficult it can be to write you know, writers often say, I want to write 2,000 words a day, but yeah. writing a 900-word column <laughs> yeah. when it's got to be funny and it's yeah. got to be topical. And the pressure of having to put it in every week or every month or whatever it is, but the regularity of it, that, that adds another layer to it. No, it is. It's, it's not something I think I could do, to be No, I would honest. struggle. And to be funny or to be consistent, yeah. that, like that's even a quality level every week. Yeah, no, but, um, well, I'm sure many of you read Stuart's columns already, but I would highly recommend... Reading, yeah. reading his stuff because it's very his good. Books. And his, his books, books are, are, as I wasn't exaggerating when I said to Stuart there that I actually had to put the book down a couple of times at night so as not to wake my wife because <laughs> I was trying not to laugh. It is that funny. So I would definitely recommend uh, reading it. And, and I've, I'm, I've got bedtime stories for worried liberals. I haven't read it's it yet. It's a very easy read and it's, it's very funny. So thanks so much again to Stuart for taking the time to come on. We really enjoyed that chat. So uh, who's on next week, Tarek? Next week, Marco, we're chatting with Claire Askew, who is a Scottish crime author, but, um, but not your typical crime that. Yeah, not a typical crime story, literary, I would say. I it's, yeah, the, her debut novel, All the Hidden Truths, yes. uh, just won the McIlvanny Prize at the Bloody Scotland Crime Festival. And it's, as you say, not a typical crime book because it's not really a whodunit or anything no, like that. No. It's, it's, you, ve- you find very <clears throat> early on what happened. Yes. But it's an exploration of why and the people it Im- impacted yes, by the crime. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the, the, it's all to do with guilt and, and what happens after grief. a crime happens. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, so it's, it's a really, Good book, uh, we, but we'll talk a lot more about it next week with Claire, so please do tune in for that one. As always, just want to say a quick thank you to Simon Stokes for his help with the audio on this podcast. As always, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or fling us a tweet to at right underscore gear. And of course, Marco, today is a big day. Yeah, uh, this episode, when it's going out, the first day it's coming out is Black Friday. So it's the day when we all spend money <laughs> on things we really don't need. Why not add to that by grabbing a page one writer's notebook, which is the structured notebook that we've designed for writers to help you plan your story. And it's discounted to a bargain price. How much? £20. 20 Yep. Two that zero. Is, you can get up to 30% off Jesus your page Christ. one notebook. And it only runs until Monday, the 2nd of December, which is Cyber Monday. Indeed. Um, Tim is absolutely livid. Yeah, we've locked him up so that we can give you this <laughs> discount. We've had to wrestle the laptop off him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, go out, grab that notebook, and hopefully speak to you next week. See you later. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. 
Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.